After this, that's after the resurrection and the other appearances, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Same as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For well, they're not that far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad, uh, aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this he had said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. 
the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that you remain, that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are, many, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You've, you've probably noticed that uh, many of the protests over the COVID vaccination program is not the vaccination itself, but that people um, don't want to be told what to do. They argue that it's mandatory. Someone close to me said, it's not joy, uh, someone said, they're not going to tell me what to do. And most people, Christians included, have this built-in resistance to being told what to do. Um, parents know that very well. Sometimes it's because of a bad experience. Most time, it's simply that we just don't want to be told what to do by other people. And that's a problem when it comes to Jesus. He said to Peter and others, follow me. What do we do with that? Follow me. As we saw from the reading, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many people in, on a number of different occasions. And on one occasion was on the beach and the Sea of Galilee, as we read. And a lot happened in that occasion. He enables them to catch a decent haul of fish, he gives them breakfast, and he restores Peter after his disastrous betrayal. And he gives Peter a massive task to instruct and build up God's people. But it's what he says after that that takes our attention today. When it's all over, he says to Peter, follow me. And immediately we're confronted with the identity of Jesus. Who has the temerity to say, follow me? He doesn't give reasons, though there are plenty. He doesn't suggest, although he's very gentle. He doesn't say it's a good idea, even if it is that. He doesn't pull rank and state his qualifications, uh, even though he's somebody. He doesn't use force, even though he has the power of life and death. He says quietly, impressively, gently, Follow me. 
He's either someone unfathomable or he's deluded. But these men were at least familiar with uh, this idea of Jesus saying, follow me. Um, Hopefully they come on the screen so you can see them. In chapter 1, verse 41 to 43, we read the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. In chapter 10, the Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 12.24 Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And it's there in 2119 as well. What is Jesus saying when he says, follow me? We don't have anywhere near the time to explore it in depth, so just very briefly. It includes treasuring him. Um, I use that because love is so hackneyed these days. Treasuring him, because he said to Peter three times, do you love me? Do you treasure me? Pursue Christ to make him the treasure of all our treasures. Secondly, renouncing all that is contrary to his will. Renouncing sin of the affections, mind and will. And the flip side of that, pursuing Christ-likeness or godliness or holiness, whatever you want to call it. That's following Jesus. It's personal. It's not a set of morals, a set of standards, but him. And you see that in these fishermen. They gave up their fishing way back in the early part of Jesus' ministry and went around with Jesus. They listened to him. They learnt from him. They ended up giving their lives for him. They lived for his honour. They lived to proclaim him. So it's still true. This is a follower of Jesus, someone who treasures Jesus, renounces all that is contrary to his will and pursues likeness to him and in recommissioning him Jesus informs Peter that he will die a martyr's death because he follows Jesus he won't deny him again he will die because of proclaiming Christ and that's the mindset and heart set of a follower of Jesus But the time on the beach isn't finished, and this is where we're going. Jesus, it seems, went for a walk with Peter. And another disciple 
we think it's John, presume it's John, follows them. I can imagine Peter walking alongside Jesus and running over in his mind, what's just happened? I've just been reinstated. It's amazing. I've been given this enormous commission to be a pastor, shepherd, to feed God's people. That's stunning after all that's happened. And I'm to die for Jesus. Gulp. And then comes John. John is the one that Jesus loves. He's extremely close to Jesus. And what is fascinating in all this is that Peter is best mates with John. And it's all too much for some reason. Peter blurts out, what about him? So we have these impressive announcements about and to Peter. You have a disciple with a unique uh, relationship with Jesus and they and all this news, the restoration, all that's happened and it conspires to well up in Peter. What about him? I'm going to feed your people and I'm going to die for the trouble. What about him? Lord, you're calling me to give up my life for you what about him? Is it distress? Is it jealousy? Is it curiosity? Is it? Who knows? We don't have to die wondering because Jesus' response covers everything. Peter, what is that to you? Follow me. And John makes an interesting little eyewitness comment that people thought Jesus' words meant that he, John, wouldn't die. Um, but live until Jesus' return. It wasn't true. What he was saying was, don't get bent out of shape. Don't worry about him. Don't concern you with him. Him, Follow me. Pretty clear, really. I determine what goes down. I determine who does what. That's my job. I'm the Lord. You're the disciple. Follow me. Don't focus on John, follow me. What he does, how long he lives, where he goes, whatever is my decision. Follow me. And whatever, whatever else we make of all this, one thing is it clear is that Jesus is Lord. The Son of God who made the world, who rose from the dead, who lives and dies and who lives and reigns with God, Jesus, the coming King. Christianity is about Christ. He is Lord. And John paints this picture of a loving, gracious master who gently restores Peter to office after his terrible betrayal. He reminds his readers um, that he enjoys this close relationship with Jesus. And yet, he is Lord. They are called to follow him. And we see it right at the beginning of the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He is Lord. And by his spirit, he apportions responsibility. To Peter, he gave a strategic pastoral ministry. To Peter, he gives a martyr's crown. For Peter, following Jesus meant a life of continuous care for God's people, culminating in his death. Um, tradition has that he was crucified upside down. Peter calls his call to a life as a shepherd and to give up his life to boot. To John, he gave a long life. Um, we believe he lived to be over 90. To John, he gives the task of writing a strategic, historical and theological witness to Jesus. His service will be much less dramatic and not so obviously heroic. You probably noticed this, but you, um, John's name is not mentioned in the extraordinary days when the Spirit comes and 5,000 people are added to the church in one hit, whereas Peter is. Later, he will settle in Ephesus and his calling is to testify to what he saw and heard and handled with reference to the word of life. And he will write a life of Jesus so simple and yet so profound that it stands as one of the greatest writings ever. He was exiled and writes a letter of encouragement to the battered and oppressed church of the time. Jesus calls John to write. Most people would think, how sad. To both and to all, he says, follow me. What is it to you, whether you are a Peter or a John or a Paul, follow me? Jesus is Lord. He gives gifts to his church. He empowers ministry. Peter, follow me. Give me your life. You don't have time to think about John. You have no responsibility to think about John. Your place is not to compare yourself. Your place is not to focus on him, but follow me. Treasure me above all else, including yourself. Obey me regardless of the specific forms of obedience that others must take. Follow me. Be mine. And this is the issue for us. Jesus is Lord. This is his church. It's not ours. Our place is to follow him. Follow Jesus. Don't compare. Comparisons are odious. Don't compare other churches. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, not your whims, your sense of fulfilment, your desires, your sense of prestige or whatever. Follow Jesus. The form of service, the shape of obedience to Jesus differs from believer to believer. Follow him. We might get a bit of an insight by checking out 
a bit in 1 Corinthians, not to look at in detail, but just to read. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are, not, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through who you came to believe. And then in chapter 4, now brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't? If you didn't Follow him, not the servants I appoint. Never listen to a leader who demands loyalty to him or her. Loyalty to Christ. It's his church. He's the chief shepherd. He's the chief pastor. Trust him, treasure him, follow him. After all, all that we have and are comes from him. All his gifts, all the gifts come from him. Roles and responsibilities come from him. Follow him. Christ apportions the gifts. He gives the people their place. He determines the blessing. Um, you've probably seen it. One pastor experiences much fruit from his ministry. Another sees very little. Assuming that they're both faithful, is there any place for jealousy, rivalry, resentment or pride? After all, what we have, God gives. Follow Jesus. Avoid turf wars. This is my turf, this is my groove, this is my ministry. No, it's not. Follow Jesus. Treasure him. I remember a lady, and it's not this church, no one you know, so I'm not going to go at anyone. I remember a lady who loved to serve in the kitchen of a particular church. And uh, she was good at it. But gradually it became her kitchen. Until the day was when no one else was allowed to do anything in the kitchen, let alone walk into the kitchen in the church. Follow him. Seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Don't waste your life comparing yourself or your ministry or place in life or income or whatever to someone else. Follow him. Don't waste your life wishing you were someone else or somewhere else. Get on with treasuring him. Don't waste your life in resentment that you are not chosen for this or you are not thanked for that. Follow him. Seek grace not to get bent out of shape 
because you aren't thanked as you think you should be or not recognised as you should be. Don't get all twisted up because your spouse isn't what you thought, what you wanted, and doesn't do what you want. I'm not talking about abuse. Follow and obey Jesus. Following him is always costly and demanding. Follow him. Don't waste your life trying to make others conform to your way of thinking, particularly on matters indifferent. Get on and obey. Treasure Jesus. I know this is difficult and I'm not trying to make it simple. I'm not trying to make it simple. Please try and work at not getting twisted out of shape by the way the church or other Christians have treated you. Follow Jesus and minister to others. Obey Jesus. Follow him. He is Lord. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit. For service in the kingdom of God. Clyde Kilby was a university professor in the United States. He wrote a whole host of resolutions which are really interesting uh, to live by. And here's one of them. I shall not demean my own uniqueness by envy of others. I shall stop boring into myself to discover what psychological and social categories I might belong to. Mostly, I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. I'll forget about myself, I'll not compare myself, I'll not be jealous, I'll not judge others, I'll not put my desires above his, I'll renounce sin and pursue likeness to him, I'll get on and follow Jesus. This doesn't mean you don't care about others. That needs to be worked out, but it means we follow Jesus in caring for others. I'll follow him and treasure him above all my treasures. Follow him and seek to make him the joy of all my joys. I'll love and serve others for Jesus' sake. I'll work as hard as I can to make him known and rejoice with others who are doing likewise. I'll follow Jesus. This is a great and noble task, too great and glorious to be trashed by jealousy, odious comparisons, and self-promoting strategies. Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you come to the place where you've abandoned your life, laid it down before him and said, I'm done. I've nothing to offer you. I've no merit of my own. I'm yours. I want to follow you. Take away my sin and make me your child. Are you following Jesus while trying to keep an eye out for what others have? 
Do you say you follow Jesus but criticising and resenting others because they don't agree with you? Are you following Jesus or holding back because you compare yourself with the exceptionally gifted? Are you following Jesus in public but not in private? I say to you, follow Jesus. Now come back to that bit we said earlier on that um, he's either someone or he's deluded to be able to say to all and sundry, follow me. Who is it that tells others to follow him to death? Who is it that calls a man um, to hardship in exile? Who is it that calls... um, Paul to a single life of unremitting sacrifice to proclaim him, who is it that calls someone to die? And at the end of the book, Jesus points us to Jesus' greatness. Twice John reminds us that there is much more about Jesus than what we have. Um, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. And then in 2125, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the entire world would not have room for the books that would have been written. Many more signs, many more things, so much more that we couldn't write it down. What we have in John, in the Gospels, um, is only a little bit of what he did. What, what we see in Acts, uh, the Acts of Christ through the Spirit, only a little bit, like the tip of the iceberg, as far as Jesus is concerned. And as I was sitting down there, I thought of that song. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Um, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every spike on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I wonder why John made those comments at the end. I suggest to you that it's to remind us of how awesome and impressive Jesus is. How great a saviour and friend, a great and glorious person. The word became flesh. The true light has come into the world. What is written reveals an impressive person, impressive in every way. You work your way through the Gospels and you cannot help be, be, I don't know, overawed really with this person in all different ways. And yet, that's a little, little glimpse into who he is and what he's done. He's much more impressive than what is just written down. John's trying to tell us in this way that 
He is truly impressive. And we don't know the half of it. Even though it's been faithfully written down, there is much, much more that is done. And I suggest that it's saying to us that Jesus is eminently trustworthy, clearly worth following, simply on the basis of what we have. We can't begin to imagine his greatness, but we have enough written down to treasure him and follow him. We can't begin to imagine the height and depth and width of his love and grace to sinners, but we have enough to reveal, have enough revealed to make him our heart's desire. We can't begin to imagine his glorious holiness, but we have enough recorded to fear and honour and glorify him. We can't begin to imagine the extent of his grace revealed in the cross and the resurrection, but we have enough information, we have enough material, we have a sufficient testimony that rejecting Jesus is plain crazy. As I was working my way through this, I came to my mind the numerous cults who are so devoted to the leader that they'll follow him or her to death. And so many of those leaders are fallible, corrupt, immoral, deceitful, narcissistic, abusive and manipulative. And yet there's something about them that people are willing to go the whole way. Here we have the most impressive, loving, holy, honest and majestic of men. And so many balk at following him because we don't want to be told what to do. Or they think that following him will spoil their lives. Or it's too hard or whatever. So what am I doing getting bent out of shape over some slight or offence or performance when Jesus, the most amazing person who ever lived, gave up his life for me? And is at work to change me into his likeness? Why is it we seek fulfilment in some relationship, some substance, some visual, something, some way of life when Jesus says, follow me and he is life? If your response is, I don't want to be told what to do, even by Jesus, I think you're missing something really extraordinary. He's greater than you imagine. But what you have here in the Gospels is more than enough to make him your treasure and follow him. If you do, for now and eternity, the life of God is and life with God. If you refuse, only death and destruction. Proverbs says in two places, there is a way that seems right to men and women, but its end is the way to death. We're told, follow your heart. That's fine, as long as your heart is calibrated to Jesus. We're told, follow your dreams. 
That's good if your dreams are attuned to Jesus. We are told, follow your desires. That's great if your desires are aligned with Jesus. We may trust our heart when our heart and desires are so renovated, so calibrated to Christ, that we have no passions for the path that leads to regret. Following Jesus is tough. It cost Peter his life. But not in the world to come. Following Jesus means a constant battle with myself, the world and the devil. But in the end, life eternal. Following Jesus cuts across earthly, sinful notions of the good life, what fulfillment looks like, what satisfaction looks like, what security is. But who else is life and joy and peace and hope? 